And so if you turn tonight to Acts chapter 18, Acts 18. Now remember that until we get to chapter 19, we're really looking at the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And so this is the history of how the church spread in that first century. Um, We're roughly AD 57, so Jesus has been resurrected and has left the earth. Uh, He's been in heaven uh, for a little over two decades. The Apostle Paul, the early church, uh, has been growing. And, And as you look at the map that I have before you, I really highlighted just four churches And I want you to see them for what they are, because the Apostle Paul has focused his efforts on really these four churches. We find him in many other locations, but the main place that he does work, the main place that he writes from, and the main churches beyond his own home church of Antioch, which is just barely out of this particular map, but for your understanding tonight... These churches are all clustered around the Aegean Sea. Most of them are what we would call modern-day Greece. Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. And so as we think about these cities, we have to remember that God has a reason for everything that he does, including these cities being the ones that the Apostle Paul is going to minister from. We turn our attention now really to the city of Corinth, And so Paul has been in Athens. Uh, There is a small isthmus that joins uh, between where Athens is and Corinth is. Uh, Corinth is the capital city of the area that your Bible calls Acacia. Uh, Though it is a part of Greece, Macedonia is the north, named after Philip the Macedon. And, and, And there in the north... Uh, we, we find this city Thessaloniki, Thessalonica, modern-day Salonica, and that's the place that we're studying on Sunday mornings. And so Paul has come down to Athens. Athens is the principal city. Uh, you could go today. It's still the home of the Parthenon. Uh, he's going to, to move across the Aegean Sea over to Eph- Ephesus, uh, but tonight we find him in Corinth. And Corinth, an easy way for you to understand it, would have been uh, to the Grecian world, uh, much like we might say Las Vegas uh, is to America. It was a city known for its debauchery. It was a city known for its primarily commerce, wealth, uh, for entertainment. And so when Paul is in Corinth, uh, he's in the middle of the devil's playground, And I don't mean to belittle anyone who lives in Las Vegas. I have friends that minister there. We have some Calvary chapels there that are strong and vibrant, much like the Apostle Paul plants a strong and vibrant church in the city of Corinth. And so it's not that everyone there is engaged in cultic prostitution, but it was commonplace. And it was a difficult place to do ministry. And so as we turn our attention to chapter 18 here in the book of Acts, Last week, Paul was in Athens. This week, he moves across the Isthmus. He's now in Corinth. He's traveled maybe two days, and he's moved into enemy territory. And it's interesting where the enemies come from. Sometimes we always think of the enemies of God, Satan himself, 
you know, evil empires, all of those kind of things. But very often, enemies come from within the church community, within communities of faith. And that is going to be the case here in chapter 18. And so the picture for us, the picture for you, the picture for me, the picture for the church in the world today is from heaven's perspective. If you're coming across opposition, chances are you're likely on the right place. You're, you're, you're moving in the right direction because if there's no opposition, then one would have to question yourself as to whether you're actually accomplishing much for the Lord. If you are in fact doing anything for the Lord, you can pretty much count on there being opposition. And that certainly is the picture that we see here in chapter 18. Would you pray with me and let's ask God to bless our time uh, in, in the word tonight. Father, we are grateful and we are thankful. Lord, that we have the example of this great Apostle Paul, Lord, someone who was in ministry for the right reasons, that trusted you as we saw this morning. Lord, that rested in your mighty hand and your provision for his life a man who believed that you were guiding and directing and protecting and that to some degree uh, as he walked with you, he knew uh, your, your invincibility was his. And, and Father, he was bold in his witness. May we be so bold in our world. And Father, we ask that you would just speak to us now as we study. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. There's a couple of young men, you know, Connie and I, when we lived in the mountains, one of the things that a lot of times the kids would do uh, in our neighborhood to make extra money was to, sn- to shovel snow. Uh, and there's actually pretty good money in it. And here's the reason why. There's a man shoveling snow in his driveway, and two boys came up carrying snow shovels and approached him. And, and they said, uh, sir, mister, can we, can we shovel your snow? And the man kind of you know, looked at him. He says, look, we're only going to charge $2. And the man's kind of puzzled because he says to them, look, can't you see I'm already doing it myself? Well, they said, sure, we can see you're doing it yourself. That's why we ask. We get most of our business from people who have already started, but they're ready to quit. You see, ministries like that. Sometimes we get going. Life is like that. Sometimes we get going. There, there are times that we get moving the right direction, but the enemy comes with discouragement. And if you've ever shoveled the berm in front of your driveway, like I've done literally hundreds and hundreds of times, uh, you know when the snowplow comes by right after you've just finished plowing your driveway and walls up another berm of snow that in one hour is going to be frozen into a block of glacial ice? Uh, it, it's frustrating. Ministry is like that. Sometimes you end up doing the same thing over and over and over again, and it gets no easier. Matter of fact, it seems almost impossible. And for the Apostle Paul, he's embarked on a seemingly impossible journey here in the 18th chapter of the book of Acts. He's moved now 52 miles to the west to Corinth. This is a city that at the time uh, had the population of near a quarter of a million people. So in the ancient world, it was a very large city. That's not going to be the easiest place to start a church when you're moving into the, the devil's playground to a place where cultic prostitution was part of the religious worship of those in that city. 
to where people believed strange philosophies, to where they were engaged in making money through vice. Uh, it, it, It was not an easy place. And in fact, when Paul authors the book of Romans, he writes it from Corinth. So the strongest passage that you have in the Bible, Romans chapter 1, on the condemnation of specific sins, the Apostle Paul writes from this very city that he's in now in Acts 18. So he's in the thick of it. Probably some of you tonight feel like you're in the thick of it when it comes to your witness in this world. Maybe it's the job that you have. Maybe it's the people you live next door to. Maybe it's the school you attend. Perhaps it's the family you were born into. But we are in a world where we are in the thick of it tonight. Thanks to its location, the city was a center of commerce. It was a center of trade. Uh, If you travel to modern-day Corinth, if you go there today, they've actually cut a a canal about four miles long or so through that isthmus, and they've joined the Ionian Sea uh, there with the Gulf of Corinth. And so uh, what used to be a three- or a four-day travel around the southern part uh, of the Grecian Peninsula, around Acacia, has now been cut down to just an hour or so, a transit just through the canal. And it was even during Roman times that they attempted, they started that. And in fact, a couple of the Caesars more than once began to dig that canal and were unsuccessful. Uh, But this was a place where you went to let your hair down. This is a place where you went to what happened in Corinth, stayed in Corinth. Uh, It was probably the, the same thing that we see in our world. But when God opens doors, no man... No demonic force can fight ultimately against the Lord. And God wanted the church planted in Corinth. He's going to then plant a church that's going to grow and, and prosper. And as Paul ministers there, he gets some definitely needed encouragements. And so as we pick up in verse 1, we find the first of these encouragements. And I want you to see this. Because maybe some of you in here tonight wonder why God has you on this earth. I can tell you a needed gift in the church is the gift of encouragement. Those who will come alongside, they don't feel the need to be necessarily in charge. They don't even necessarily feel like maybe God's given them the gifts that are uh, completely needed for the ministry to go forward. But they are an encouragement to people who are heavy in the thick of battle. And I will tell you, I receive encouragement. So very often, I'm standing at the door, uh, greeting maybe after a service, and someone comes up and they say, I just want you to know, you know, God ministered to me through the message this morning. Or I want you to know, when you prayed uh, last week for this condition, God answered that prayer. It is the gift of encouragement when you encourage the laborers in the field to keep pressing on when it seems dark. Don't underestimate your power to be an encourager. So we turn our attention now, verse 1 here in Acts 18. And after these things, what things? Well, Paul has just finished the work that he'd begun in Athens, and he is now uh, moving across. And so after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. So he makes that short journey, probably two days. 
And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, who was recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded that all the Jews were to depart from Rome. And so Caesar, Claudius, has made this dictum that no Jews are to be left in Rome. They were seen as troublemakers. And so much like the Christians were treated, so the Jews also treated the same way. And he came to them. And so because he was of the same trade, he he stayed with them and worked For by occupation, they were tent makers. And and herein lies what is still a a vast majority of all people who are in ministry all over the world. It is really only we here in America that have uh, the precious privilege, somewhat in Europe that exists as well, but the precious privilege of really being able to say, uh, I'm a professional pastor. In other words, as I tend to the flock of God, I can actually make a living uh, doing exactly that and only that. But in the rest of the world, most pastors are still tent makers. Most pastors still have a trade. And in fact, according to, to the Jewish way of seeing things, it was actually an anathema uh, for a rabbi to take money from those that uh, he was ministering alongside of and with. And so very often... And the rabbis would teach those who were under their tutelage an actual skill. So it was not just the word of God. They'd actually teach them things like tent making or maybe pottery. There would be a skill involved so as to not be a burden on the church. And that was so in Paul's day. And so Priscilla, Aquila, uh, also the apostle Paul were tent makers. They learned that trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. So during the week, tent making. And then Friday night as sunset, uh, you, could find, you could find Priscilla, you could find Aquila, you could find the Apostle Paul at times uh, ministering in the synagogue and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. And, and so cross-culturally trained, very important in our modern culture to consider the culture that you're ministering to. Uh, this church is not the same as maybe a church in, in the middle of you know, middle America, maybe in Indiana, we, we wouldn't see the deep cultural uh, flavor that we have here. We're, we're an extremely multi- multicultural church. Some churches are predominantly one race. Some churches are predominantly one uh, people group. When you go to Minnesota or you go to Wisconsin, you're going to find Lutheran churches where virtually everyone uh, is at least part German. Uh, you'll find Dutch churches. You'll, you'll find churches where there are various cultures. And in this case, Paul was in a multicultural uh, community, much like the one that we're in. And so there are Jews, there are Greeks, there are those that are Isthmians, there are those that are Acacians, uh, there are those that have come from Carthage, Carthage. There are those that we would call Phoenicians. And so this is a multicultural environment because of the city and the way it is, is, is actually set in, in that particular world at that time. And very much like Los Angeles. And when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, so remember that we saw Timothy was left in Thessalonica. And so Timothy was in the north. He's now come south. 
uh, from Thessalonica along with Silas. Remember, Silas had been left. Where was he? He was in Philippi. Remember, they got in trouble with the, with the, in the jail. And, and there in that particular environment, Paul and Silas. So they're now all coming together uh, there in Corinth, kind of getting together with a little bit of a meeting. And Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. And again, we had a, a meeting today for our Israel trip, and one of the things that, that came up, and one of the things that always comes up, when we travel to Israel, we want to be a witness to the Jewish people, to the Hebrew people. And, and one of the things that we have to do is we have to be careful of those cultural differences. Things that we could do here would be no offense, basically, to anyone except those who were just opposed to God in general. But, but in Israel... You, you know, to wear a Got Jesus t-shirt um, is very offensive to most Jewish people. And while that is a truth, it's also unnecessary for us to, to wear that type of a shirt when we're trying to minister or, or, or be a witness, at least, to the Jewish people. We don't need to wear it on our chest. We need to wear it in our lives. We need to be as Christ would be. And so we speak, instead of with slogans on T-shirts, we speak with love and we speak with care. We, we speak with, with concern. And in fact, when I was talking to Amir, one of the things he said that often is most offensive is that a vast majority of the tourism that, that happens in Israel actually is American specifically, but Christians in general, Christians coming to tour these sites. So everyone in Israel knows that we're Christians who love Jesus. So to kind of poke them in the chest with that is, is an offense to them, and it's unnecessary. And so we see that type of environment here. You, you notice what the Apostle Paul is having trouble with. You see, you could talk about the Old Testament scriptures, but the moment to the Jews, that Jesus is the Christ, trouble begins to, to brew. It's the providence of God, I believe, that Aquila and, and Priscilla are there meeting with the Apostle Paul. And, and, and so they, they begin this little ministry of making tents during the day. And so what we see here is the gift of encouragement through radically devoted helpers. Someone says, and every pastor needs them, I am so blessed here. Uh, to have so many gifted and talented and wonderful people that minister alongside. Uh, Connie and I would both tell you the same thing, that the staff here in this church, the, the beautiful uh, servants of the Lord, uh, are one of our biggest blessings in life. Because in a church this size, you, you can't do everything yourself. We pastored a church to where sometimes you had to do everything or most everything yourself. But it's not true. And so that encouragement of having someone to lift the other corner uh, of that burden to come alongside was the picture here. People with their heads, people with their hands, their hearts, their homes, dedicated to the work of the Lord. And it's a tremendous encouragement to those of us uh, who have the, have the privilege of, of being pastors and leaders within, within God's church. He had Christian friends, he had old ones, he had new ones, and so Timothy and Silas, and so this is a picture. Please take the opportunity to be an encouragement to people in the body of Christ. Come alongside those whom you know are serving the Lord and encourage and strengthen them. 
Ralph Waldo Emerson, our eminent poet here from the United States, said, God evidently does not intend us to all be rich and powerful or great, but he does intend for all of us to be good friends. That's something we can all do. That's something we can all be a part of. We can come alongside and be that great friend in the Lord. And that's the principle that's found there in Galatians 6, there in the second verse. We are to so bear and share in one another's burdens, in other words, the things that someone else is called to do, as to do so is to fulfill the law. And so when you're carrying someone else's load a little bit, you're actually fulfilling the law of the Lord, which in the New Testament is love. Amen? That's that show of love that we have when we come alongside other people who are working in the ministry. And humanly speaking, there would not have been a church in Corinth were it not for those lay leaders like Aquila and Priscilla that came alongside and carried that burden. In spite of what God was doing through Paul, God needs all of the hands, all of the hearts, all of the heads uh, all of the gifts, as Paul would write to the church at Corinth there in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when he begins to describe all these things that the body is, is going to do, it, it takes every bit uh, of each of us doing what God's called us to do. The second thing, of course, when the church begins to grow, is you find that brutal opposition. Wherever God's doing a work, whenever there's blessing in ministry, you're going to find the enemy come against. Notice verse 6. But when they had opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads, for I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And so Paul now ends this time when he principally goes and finds a synagogue and immediately goes to the synagogue and shares the truth from the Old Testament scriptures. He's now shifting gears almost entirely to the Gentiles. And and so his methodology will be a little different. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man uh, named Justice, one who worshipped God. And so the inference is there, this is a man who knows the Lord already, whose house, and I love this, is next door to the synagogue. God has a sense of humor. He's basically been told, hey, we don't want to hear what you have to say. Get out. He said, well, if you don't want to hear the truth, that's your right. That's your prerogative. That's your privilege if you want to kick me out. Uh, But he finds somebody who knows the Lord right next door to the synagogue. And so you can kind of imagine what's actually happening here. You have to read a little bit between the lines. But as people are heading to synagogue, there's the Apostle Paul, a rabbi, who's a Pharisee a member of the Sanhedrin who's now sitting outside on this man's porch, if there were such a thing, and every time somebody goes by, he's still sharing the same message. So God works in our lives. And in Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, now the ruler of the synagogue is an interesting thing that is not specifically so much a religious position as it was a a provisional position. In other words, this is someone who primarily took care of the function of the synagogue. So this is a person who made sure that the things were taken care of, uh, that the ark that contained the scroll... Uh, was there and on the Bama, and, and so there would be an ability for someone to read, and, and the pointer would be there, and he would kind of take care of the stuff uh, that, that made up the, the, the workings of the synagogue. And he believed on the Lord with all of his household, and many of the Corinthians hearing uh, believed and were baptized. And so whenever God begins to do 
this ministry, what we call ministry, you, you can kind of see how the opposition has turned up. And, and this is from those who have some knowledge of the word. Remember again, that our, our love for the Jewish people is without question because our Savior is Jewish. Uh, he, was, he was born to Jewish parents. Uh, he was obviously God's own son. Uh, but in, in all ways, uh, we, we are blessed to say our Savior is a Jewish carpenter. Amen? From the little town of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem. And so there's an effective door that's been opened, just as Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 16, that's opened up. And as he's moved from Thessalonica and Berea and these cities, uh, there's opposition's growing. People are following around. It's like, man, we've got to get rid of this guy. Come alongside and encourage people who are are being uh, persecuted in ministry. One of the things that we always need to be mindful of when we plant churches and start new works is that you kind of got to come alongside and make sure that those people that are doing those works are okay. You know, we have multiple churches, just for your information tonight, uh, we just took on another six churches down in El Salvador. So we have a total of 16 churches that we're now supporting in El Salvador. We are supporting the pastors. We're supporting the lay leaders there. Uh, we, are, we are making sure that they have the opportunity. And then I'm going to go visit them in two weeks. I'm actually going to do a pastor's conference and, and go uh, again impart to them and encourage them and strengthen them and build them up and let them know they're not alone. When you have an opportunity to do that, I want to really encourage you, come alongside and lift up somebody's arms who's doing the work of the ministry. It's an important function uh, of the body of Christ. The next thing that we see here in this wonderful book is is a a word of assurance. Notice verse 9. And now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Now Paul has seen the Lord Paul has had visions. Paul has seen an angel of the Lord. What you need, God is able to give. And he gives it when you need it. And so in this case, the Lord speaks to Paul in a vision. And he says, and if you have a red letter Bible, it may even be in red there. Uh, Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. Any of you ever felt alone? Uh, have you been in a place to where you, you might be the only Christian in the, in the place that you work? Have you ever thought that maybe you're the only Christian on your block? Look, God has his people everywhere. And when you need encouragement, he is able to send those people to come alongside of you. And here it says in verse 11, and he continued there for a year and six months. So this is second only to the amount of time that he will spend in Ephesus. And other than his own home church, which is the church of Antioch, this is the most time he spends anywhere. So Paul digs in. He says, look, I'm in this for the long run. And at that time with the Roman rulers, uh, as such as they were, Uh, If you stayed in one place for any length of time, chances are Rome was going to come knocking. And of course, that would eventually happen in Paul's life, and he would end up imprisoned in Rome. But he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. And again, remember, the word of God in this context was almost assuredly uh, primarily from the Old Testament. So some of the early gospel letters had begun to circulate by this time, but this was primarily the Old Testament as we would know it. 
And then Gallio, the proconsul of Acacia. Now remember, that's that peninsula that Corinth is on. It's the other side of the isthmus. Uh, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. So they bring him to the place of the council. Uh, they're going to judge him saying, fellow, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now, of course, that wasn't true. It's a made-up story, but that's their story. And it's interesting how when people uh, have aught with us as the body of Christ, they very often will attempt to use uh, the government, and they will attempt to use the laws of the land to suppress the word of God. It certainly is happening in our world. We, we have Christians today in our country. You have, you have multiple bakers now. You have photographers who have said, look, I believe that a wedding and a marriage is between a man and a woman. God's word says it. I'm a Christian. I'm going to stick to that. And so rather than trying them on religious grounds, which are constitution guarantees we have the right of religious freedom amen that's that's part of what you're guaranteed as an american citizen the free right to worship as you see fit and yet instead of using a religious reason they're using the law against people who simply are trying to follow what god has told them is truth the same was true then and so now the law comes into to picture as the proconsul uh, gets involved in this. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if this were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes of Jews, uh, there would be a right reason why I should bear with you. But if it's a question of words and names in your own law, Look to it to yourselves, for I do not want to be the judge of such matters. And so he rightly turns it back into a, a, a matter for, for the Jewish people to decide for themselves. And he drove them from the judgment seat. And then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. Gallio said, I take no notice of these things. And so this picture of persecution begins to grow. And, and this is the way it still is in part of the world. If you've been following our, our brother Victor Marx and what's going on with him right now in, in Mosul, um, it's pretty crazy. Our, our own government just launched a, a fairly major offensive in that region to try and take back the city from ISIS. And so, so what, are, what is ISIS doing? They're slaughtering Christians. Anyone who... Uh, is not clearly and decidedly uh, a follower of Islam, is being murdered. You know, to be a Christian can cost you at times. And so it was here with Paul. But just like the Lord always does, and it's found for you in Isaiah 41, verses 10 and 11, the, the Lord knows what to say to us. And there are those verses in Isaiah 41, it begins in verse 10, with fear not, for I am with you. And that is the word of comfort to us. Fear not, for the Lord is with us. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And behold, all those who were incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing. And those who strive with you shall perish. In the end, God's got it. God's always had it. God had Abraham in view, God had Isaac in view, God had Jacob in view, and God has you in view. He hasn't lost sight of you. He knows where you are, he knows what you're going through, and he would say to us tonight, fear not. Our message this morning 
We have to trust God. It's time for us to trust the Lord. You know, his, his own name, Emmanuel, means God with us. Amen? He is with us. And sometimes we forget that. We begin to look at everything with our human resources, with our human vision, with our human understanding. And before you know it, the enemy has us because he's convinced us through fear that, that we need to give up. Just quit. It'll be easier. I, I have lost count of the number of times that the enemy has come at me personally with just give up. Just quit. If you just stop, things will actually be better for you. It's one of those things that Connie and I kind of giggle about now. It's like, oh, there must be something great around the corner because the enemy's trying to kill us again. Now, I'm not mocking the power of Satan. I'm just simply saying that greater is he who's in us than he who's in this world. And sometimes we give the enemy a little too much credit. We, we give him too much room to work in our lives. We acknowledge those fears, and, and he begins to feed those fears right back to us in a greater measure. Sometimes you just have to say, look, the Lord has said, this is what he's told me, this is what I'm going to do, and, and, and I'm not going to quit. You see, the enemy doesn't have to destroy you if he can get you to quit. The enemy doesn't have to fight too hard if he can just simply get you so discouraged that you give up. Don't underestimate the amount of effort and energy that the enemy and his demons put into trying to get you to just simply quit. In Jesus' name, don't quit. Be assured, have that fearlessness that God wants us to have. Now, I can't say for certain that no evil will befall you because Christians have been persecuted and we have suffered the church has suffered immense evil. But I can tell you this, in the end, your suffering for the Lord results in glory. That one day there will be a crown of reward for all of that suffering. You may not see it while you're here, but you for certain will see it when you get there. And so be fearless in that sense. Tell the enemy, look... The church is not made up, just exactly as 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us, the church is not made up of a bunch of mighty and noble people. The church and its leadership are made up of, of fools, as Paul said. He said, we're out of our mind for the sake of Christ. That's how the world views us. We're a little bit touched, a little bit off. We're not quite altogether there as far as the world is concerned. But as far as God's concerned, we're right on. Right where he wants us to be. And so the Apostle Paul is under this incredible attack. But God's incredible protection is even greater than the incredible attack. And that's the message from this. And so Paul goes on. He says, look, I'm just going to strive to do the will of the Lord. I'm going to strive to trust God. When the enemy comes with fear, when the enemy comes with doubt, when the enemy disrupts, then I'm going to turn back to the Lord. Verse 18, and so Paul still remained a good while. And I love that. He still remained a good while. While things were going ugly, while things were turned around and upside down, and the enemy was trying to thwart everything that Paul was doing, he says, look, I'm going to stick it out. I'm going to stay a while longer. He's going to, in that sense, strive. He's going to lay hold of it and say, look, I'm not quitting. I'm going to press on. 
He's basically saying, God willing. And then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. So now he's going to go across the Aegean Sea. So he stayed there a year and a half and ministered in a city where ministry was hard. And now the Lord's given him a, a freedom to move, move on to uh, Syria, modern-day Turkey, where Ephesus is today. And Priscilla and Aquila were with them, so now they've come with him. So he's picked up a couple of friends along the way. He, he's been encouraged, and he's been strengthened. And he had his hair cut off at Centuria, for he had taken a vow, most likely the Nazarite vow. That would be a reason for someone to cut their hair uh, short, shorn short, as it were. And he came to Ephesus, and he left them there. And so now the Apostle Paul is back on, on the Asia Minor side of the Aegean Sea, modern-day uh, Syria, the border of Turkey, uh, there where Ephesus is. And when he, he was there, he, he came and he reasoned with the Jews. And so he, he's still trying to make headway into the, into the Jewish community, but he's primarily uh, ministering to the Gentiles uh, in the region. When they asked him to stay longer uh, for a time with them, he did not consent. In other words, he said, look, I, I'm only here for a short period of time. I've got a vow to keep. And he took leave of them saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. So now he's going to travel down to Jerusalem. He's in the north. Uh, And as he does that, he says, I will return again to you, God willing. And so he leaves it again in God's hands. He says, look, I'm going to trust the Lord. If I'm supposed to be back here, he'll send me back. If I'm not supposed to be back here, then... That must be the Lord's will. He's going to have to make a way. And when he had landed at Caesarea, so now he's traveled down the coast. The port city of Ephesus was one of the largest ports uh, on that side of the Aegean, on the, on the eastern side of the Aegean Sea. So you have the port at Athens, you have the port at Corinth, you have the port in the north at Thessalonica, and there on the Aegean, on the, Aegean, on the eastern side, you have the port of Ephesus. And so he leaves from there, and then he lands at Caesarea. Now, Caesarea is in the Promised Land. It's in the, it, it's modern-day uh, Netanya, basically. And so now he's moved down the coast, he's landed, and you've got about a two-day journey uh, to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Caesarea was the port city. Herod the Great built it. Uh, monumental fortifications there. It was conquered by the, by the Ottoman Turks. It was conquered uh, by Sahaladin. Uh, and so it, it, it is a, a very, very substantial coastal city uh, with a deep water port. And, and when he had gone up, and up here means an elevation from Caesarea, which is on the coast, at zero feet, uh, up to Jerusalem at 2,800 feet, it means an elevation up. And when he had gone up and greeted the church, uh, he went down to Antioch. And so he's going to travel again to his own home city of Antioch. And so he says, look, God willing, I I made a vow to God. And I'm going to keep that vow. I'm going to do what God's told me. He's not saying that I need to keep the feast because I'm still keeping the feast in addition to my salvation uh, in Christ through God's grace. He said, "I I made a vow and I'm going to keep that vow. Family of God, can I tell you something? When you make a promise, keep it. Because when you tell somebody you're a Christian and you make a promise and you don't keep it, they very often blame God. Keep your promises. 
Even if it seems like, eh, maybe it's not that meaningful. And in this case, for Paul to keep a feast, in a sense of his grace that he now walked in, it wasn't that important. But he made that vow and people were watching him. He was a witness for the Lord, even in keeping the vow. When you make a promise to people, keep it. Even if that promise is something that seems like maybe it isn't going to matter in the long run. When you say you're a Christian, keep your word. Because your word is, in fact, that bond that many people would say, ah, you know, Jeff's a Christian, he keeps his word. His God must be trustworthy. You see, when you don't keep your word, they, they think maybe your, your God's not trustworthy. Maybe the Lord's not trustworthy. Maybe this was some feast of dedication. Maybe it was something going on in his life. But Paul said, look, I said it, I'm going to do it. And he wanted to go to Jerusalem, which makes, makes me believe this was, in fact, the Nazarite vow, because that had to be completed uh, in Jerusalem in order for it to be valid. And so as he says these things, look, he, there were all kinds of important feasts that he could have gone there for. But the point is this. It wasn't that he was going there to remain Jewish, so to speak. He was going there because he said he would. So much a picture of us being a good witness before the Lord. Paul had lots of challenges in his ministry. But one of the strengths of his life was he could leave things in God's hands. And what God told him to do, he was willing to, to carry out to the end. That's a lesson for us. God speaks into your life as best as you possibly can. Do what you've promised God you'll do. Allow him to use your life that way. You're going to find a lot of victory uh, as you do that type of ministry. When you just simply say, you know what, God told me to do it, I'm going to do it. You'd be surprised how many people are watching it. You may not even know are watching, and then you find out later, I was watching to see if you were going to actually follow through on that. And when you give glory to the on- and honor to the Lord for the fact that you did carry it through, they're going, I- I'm not sure I know your God, but I sure like the results of what he does in your life, so maybe I need to entertain your God. Maybe your Savior, there's something to your Savior Jesus. Luke doesn't describe this remaining journey. We'll get to more of it in Ephesus in chapter 19. But Paul is, is embarking on uh, his, his final of the longer missionary journeys. And uh, he's heading to the city that is, is marked by the Temple of Diana. And that temple had probably been on, on the Acropolis there uh, for maybe as much as four or 500 years. But this is one of the largest buildings of the ancient world. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. The Temple of Diana, 418 feet long, 239 feet wide, 50 feet high. This is a massive building. When you think about that building was built some 2,500 years ago. It was an immense site. Uh, The columns on it, over 70 of them, more than six feet in diameter. This is a giant work. But it was also one of the most vile places on the planet. So he goes from one vile place in Corinth to another vile place, Ephesus, because there was was the worship of the fertility goddess uh, Diana, also known as Artemis, the god uh, goddess, in essence, of all things sexual. And so in that temple, there was cultic prostitution. There were hundreds of 
uh, prostitutes, both male and female, available. And that cultic prostitution was, in essence, linked to the worship of God. And so you talk about a popular cultic uh, environment, because here you, here you have this massive temple that's one of the seven wonders of the world, standing on the top of this hill, overlooking uh, the city of Ephesus itself, and you have, as part of the worship there, um, sexual acts of every flavor and kind that you can possibly imagine, and that is associated with the worship of this goddess. And so this was a popular place, and people came from all over, well, great is the temple of Diana. And Paul stays in this city the longest of any city that he stays in. He stays for three years. So he's a year and a half in Corinth. He's three years in Ephesus. That's a guy who's not going to quit. Because I guarantee you, that was not easy ministry. Because they had been worshiping the goddess Diana like that for four to five hundred years. So it was pretty well entrenched. You're stepping into the enemy's playground. The enemy has this city. And Paul says, I'm not giving in. Verse 23. And after he'd spent some time there, he departed and went over to the region of Galatia. So he goes to the north, to to Phrygia, uh, in order to be strengthening all of the disciples. And there a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, so northern Africa. Alexandria is on the northern coast of the African continent. Uh, he, he was an eloquent man, mighty in the Scriptures. And again, he would be mighty in the Old Testament Scriptures. He understood what we would call the Old Testament. But he came to Ephesus. And this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And so he was a new believer. He was a man who knew the Old Testament. He had a ton of zeal because he's going to one of the hardest places on the planet to, to speak about Christ. And Being fervent in the spirit. Can I tell you this? This is one of the things that we often see in young people. Tremendously fervent in the spirit. They have zeal. Unmatched zeal, quite honestly. Because we who are a little older, we get kind of set in our ways. And we're pretty happy with the way God's using us and, and in that place. But along comes someone who's young. And they know the things of the Lord. And they have tremendous zeal. The spirit is powerful in them but they kind of need a little more teaching under their belt. Need a little more knowledge. And so that was Apollos. Fervent in the spirit, and he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord. And though he knew only the baptism of John, so now we kind of see exactly how woefully deficient his total theology was. He had made it all the way to the baptism of John. Do you know what's after the baptism of John? Uh, The death, the burial, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the ascension of the Lord Jesus. He made it to the baptism of John. So he understood that there was one who was going to come. And even the baptism of John, he says, I'm not even worthy to tie the sandals of him who's coming after me. So he understood the Messiah in that sense. But he didn't understand the fullness of the gospel plan. He was a believer. He believed by faith. He he undoubtedly had received the Lord by grace. 
through faith. And so he began to boldly speak in the synagogue. And so here comes Aquila and Priscilla. And they heard him and they took him aside. And I want you to circle the they. That's a man and a woman. And this is one of those powerful hit you in the face kind of things when you have the non-complementarian view of the women's role in the church, the they is a woman teaching a man. The they is also Priscilla teaching Apollos, who saved the apostle Paul, maybe Timothy, uh, one that was so powerfully used of the Lord, actually created a little bit of a division because some would say, I am of Paul, and the others would say, I am of Apollos. This guy becomes one of the stalwarts of the early church. And he's, in fact, straightened up in his theology by not just Aquila, but Priscilla, a man. And they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. The way of God is the plan of salvation, the gospel. Matter of fact, the early church was actually known as the people of the way. And so they're speaking to him now about the completed picture uh, that was available to him because of the cross. And when he desired to cross to Acacia, the brethren wrote exhorting the disciples to receive him. So now he's going to go back to where Paul just was. He's going to go back to Corinth. So he's in Ephesus. Paul, on divine appointment, goes there. Uh, uh, Priscilla and Aquila are there. They get together. And, and this is how the Lord works. It's incredible how God works in our lives to line us up with other people's lives to impart to us those things that we need at that time. And then send us on our way sometimes to where the Lord uh, is clearly working in us, to us, and through us. And so the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he, he arrived, he greatly helped those who had, who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And so he comes from Alexandria, the second most important city in the entire Roman Empire. The home uh, of, of the second largest library in the world at the time. Uh, some 700,000 volumes contained there. And in fact, we are indebted today to the library at Alexandria for some of our best biblical man manuscripts. They came from the Alexandrian Pentateuch. And, and so that place where Apollos was, and now he, he's, he's up in Asia and he's being ministered to by this couple. And, and the beauty of all of this is he didn't know anything about Calvary yet. He didn't know about the resurrection of the Lord. But he believed by faith. And so here comes this, this couple that's now going to tell him about, can you imagine him hearing for the first time, oh, we were all gathered in an upper room and a mighty rushing wind came upon us and, and, and tongues of fire lit upon uh, those who were gathered in that room and we all began to speak and hear in our own language. He now understands that the body of Christ had been filled with the Spirit. Can you imagine what happened to Paul, Apollos, who was already zealous? When you take someone who's zealous and you give them completed revelation, when you take someone who has zeal and you finish off the knowledge, 
uh, you have just put a mighty iron in the hand of God. And that was Apollos. And one of the mighty people that was used to, to train him up was a woman named Priscilla who taught him rightly the scriptures. And he would go on to be uh, one of the great leaders of the church. And I encourage you, you know, sometimes when, when we talk about the role of women in the church, I, I think the church needs to, to reevaluate uh, some of the things that we have said over the years and the severity with which we say them. While the role of pastor is clearly defined, the role of teacher has not ever been solely men teaching everyone else. And this is one example of women actually teaching a man one-on-one. And so while we must be careful to maintain the biblical headship that is clear in Scripture, there is no prohibition in Scripture of women teaching men. There is a prohibition of women pastoring churches because that affects the headship that God has clearly laid out there in Ephesians 5. Because now you've got that upside down. And so be careful. Uh, I, I got into a little back and forth with a few folks uh, over, over a couple of things that I think ought to be fairly easy for us to, to take a look at. Uh, as in, we don't put a disclaimer on our website uh, that only, only women can listen to the women's studies. And you know what? We actually have men who listen to the women's study. You know what? They actually get something out of it. <laughs> I myself have been deeply touched by a number of tremendously gifted teachers who happen to be women. Kay Arthur, Elizabeth, Elliot, and Graham Lotz, my own bride. You know, if I ever want to know what the Bible's really speaking uh, to and about a woman. I, I want to hear that from someone who might just possibly be one. Novel idea. You know, so if I want a, a woman's understanding of what the scriptures say, it might be a good idea if I actually listen to my wife. You, you see, in that sense, God used this wonderful, godly woman to teach a godly man even still further the revelations of God. Don't miss that. And don't limit what God can do to some manufactured gender role that isn't found in Scripture. In doing so, I think we lose something in the church. We lose the compliment that we were intended. When you read the New Testament, there are 23 specifically named women who are named as disciples of Christ. 23. And they're found teaching, they're found edifying, they're found building up, they're found doing all kinds of things. And that was in a male-dominated society. And those ladies were being used of the Lord. So open your eyes of understanding Hear the will of the Lord. It's not to turn ministry upside down. It's not to say we're going to change what God has said about church leadership. But nowhere does the Lord prohibit 
uh, women teaching men. And in fact, your Bible actually has examples of women doing exactly that. As we draw to a close tonight, worship team is going to come back out. And I would end with this. Apollos ministered for a time at the church in Corinth. We're going to find out in the very next chapter. And, and the learning that he got from this couple, from Aquila and Priscilla, uh, the reason they didn't instruct him in public is that would have been seen as scandalous, so they took him aside to do that. Uh, maybe they took him home to a Sabbath dinner. We don't specifically know. But they led him in a deeper knowledge of Christ. And that's the lesson here. Listen to anyone who can lead you into a deeper knowledge of Christ. Hear hear the word of the Lord from whoever speaks rightly the word of truth. And don't get hung up on what gender that person is. The word of God is the word of God. And whether it comes out of the mouth of a man or a woman, it still is truth and it still goes forth and does what God has purposed and willed it to do. So make sure that you have a biblical understanding of this issue as opposed to a church understanding or a specific theologic understanding from a specific group of people with a specific agenda. Scripture just simply says when we need to grow and somebody offers to help us grow, it's a good thing to let them help us grow, whoever that is. God's word is God's word and it will not return void but it will always go forth and accomplish that for which it was sent. So Paulus ministers for a time, his, his learning, his eloquence. You know, one of the things that happens when we get a broader view of all things is that we become more balanced. Uh, we lose some of the things that maybe we're a little bit prejudiced in, maybe we're a little bit shifted to one side in. And it's unfortunate that... You know, a, a clique gathers around Apollos. We're going to find that he actually ends up, you know, kind of starting a little bit of, of division. I don't know that it was uh, his doing. I just believe that people are like that. People like to follow people. People like to follow people. Here's, here's a clue for you. Uh, there's only one Lord, and we all serve him. We all follow him. There's only one Bible. We can all read it, the one truth that's, in, that's included in it. Uh, is available to all without, without any hindrance whatsoever. And God wants us all uh, to be able to communicate the Scriptures wonderfully and beautifully, and as best as you can, seek out those who can help you with that. Amen? Amen.